Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, weirdos. Rachel here. Before we get into the show, I just have a couple of quick and exciting announcements. First of all, I'm going to need all of y'all to mark your calendars and save the date for August 24th because we are having a live show, not just a live streaming show, but one with actual people in the audience, which we have not done since before the pandemic. And I am really, really excited for it'll be in New York City at our favorite venue caveat and masks will be highly encouraged. But for folks who either can't attend live events or who don't live anywhere near New York City, we will also be selling streaming tickets. We'll have more info on that soon, including a brief and super exclusive discounted ticket sale period. So definitely keep an eye out and an ear out for more information. Ear out. Do people say that? Anyway, ear to the ground. Eyes open. Full hearts. Get loose. Our other news, which is no less exciting, is that Weirdest Thing is now available on YouTube. So the next time you're binging lo-fi beats to study to, hop on over to at Popsci, that's P-O-P-S-C-I, and you can listen to the latest Weirdest Thing. Even if YouTube isn't like your primary spot for listening to podcasts, uh, which if it is, like, thank you for putting up with us not being on YouTube for so long. But even if it's not, it would really help us out if you could scurry on over there and, you know, give us a little thumbs up, leave a comment, subscribe, reply to a comment. I don't know, do all the things you do on a YouTube video that you like because it'll help other weirdos find the show. Okay, that's it from me. And now it's time to get into the show. Thanks for listening, weirdos. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Jess Bodie. And I'm John Kennedy. John, welcome to the show. And Jess, welcome to this side of the mic for the first time in a while. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm so glad to be back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Listeners, uh, of course, pretty much all of you should know that Jess is our incredible producer. Um, Stop. (laughs) (laughs) And John is a DIY editor at PopSci and um, has been on our sister show, Ask Us Anything, before. But this is your first time on Weirdest Things. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, etc. And decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Jess, what's your tease? Okay, my tease is that there's a thing called corpse wax. Uh, And I first heard about this in some of my favorite video games, and it turns out it is a thing in real life. Oh. (laughs) It's terribly exciting. I'm I'm excited. I'm terribly excited. Um, (laughs) In every sense of the word. Uh, Uh John, what's your tease? Yeah, so I learned that back when the uh, early skyscrapers of New York City were being constructed, there was some drama about uh, did they have secret mechanisms inside them to make them taller when their <laughs> opponents got taller. 
So that's what I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> I, so it sounds intriguing, old timey, and um, batshit crazy. So can't wait. <laughs> um, my tease is that um, I'm going to talk about a bug that hadn't been seen in decades showing up at a Walmart and then getting identified over Zoom. Um, <laughs> wow. What a 2023 fact. It's, it's a really, <laughs> it's really set in a particular time and place. Um, Indeed. <laughs> I can, I can get started with yes. that. Yeah. Okay, great. Please um, do. Please do. <laughs> so, um, okay. Set the scene. It's 2020. And um, Michael Scavarla, who's the director of Penn State's Insect Identification Lab, um, has the unenviable task of leading an insect identification lab course over Zoom. Entomology 432, to be precise, uh, Insect Biodiversity and Evolution. And it's just like a prerequisite course already, like not the most thrilling academic ride, but it's fault. It's 2020 and it's happening over Zoom. So just that's the tone. Um, his students are at home using loner microscopes, and he is going through his own personal insect collection on the screen and demonstrating uh, which features he used to identify them when he labeled them and put them away. Uh, so according to some of the students, uh, Scavarlo was describing the insect he'd labeled as an antlion, um, which is a dragonfly-like creature known for having these very predatory larvae that most people call doodlebugs, which is <laughs> deaf. And- <laughs> but it's not an ant or a lion. It's a dragonfly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, yes, exactly. Um, yep. Okay. <laughs> so doodlebug. Um, and then he just kind of like froze because uh, he was realizing live on Zoom that that is not what this was. It was way too big. So he told the class, uh, you know, we're going to just reclassify this right now together, get some uh, real life identification lab experience. Um, And in a couple of minutes, uh, they had come to a pretty surprising conclusion. So it was actually uh, polystrychotis punctata. That may not be correct, but I give it my all. Sounds good um, to me. Which is, thank you. Yes. A member of a family of giant lacewing insects that have existed for at least a hundred million years. Um, I will pause here and say that a lot of news outlets and the college press release in the defense of those news outlets <laughs> referred to the giant lacewing as a quote, Jurassic era insect. Um, but the co-author of the study about this bug, uh, J. Ray Fisher, who uh, is from the University of Missouri and based in Fayetteville, he pointed out that this is a bit of a stretch. This is one of about 60 species with an evolutionary lineage that can be traced back to a common ancestor that originated in the Jurassic. Um, it's also important to note that it's only giant in relation to other lace wings, which are smaller. <laughs> um this specimen has a wingspan of like two inches. Um, mm. So this isn't some massive prehistoric bug that's been missing since the days <laughs> of the dinosaurs, uh, which a lot of headlines seem to suggest. I will say I saw this news story going around and that is, I was like, how did we miss Absolutely. this for so long yeah. if it was so that big? That is what it seemed like. Yeah. Um, and it, it wasn't even missing at all, technically. You can still find it in the Western U.S., but it's been considered um, extirpated, that is to say regionally extinct, in most of the country since 1950. So if you look at the map of their recorded sightings in the 1800s, you'll see like a few on the East Coast. And in the early 20th century, there are like a handful around the Midwest. But by the mid-century, the only sightings are way out west. Uh, And it's not entirely clear why that happened. Most experts think that increased air pollution, um, increased light pollution, and then invasive species uh, drove them out. So, okay, now that I've I've hedged the finding. (laughs) Yes. um, This is still exciting, and not just because uh, it was identified over Zoom. So not only was Scavarla's specimen from Arkansas, which is hundreds of miles east of any member of the species has been found in for for more than a half a century, 
Um, but he also casually scooped it up from the facade of a Walmart in an urban area of Fayetteville. And this was way back in 2012. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So and yeah, so he says he remembers it really vividly. Um, this is back when he was a doctoral student uh, in Arkansas and he was walking into a Walmart to get some groceries and he saw this giant insect on the side of the building um, and he thought it looked cool. So he put it in his hand and he did the rest of his shopping with it, like between his fingers, which Nuh-uh. is definitely like a total entomology. Big time. <laughs> just, just carry it around with some bugs. That's hilarious. Um, and then he brought it home and he, um, he mounted it, meaning killed it, un- unfortunately. But please, please remember listeners before you freak out, the most insects have lifespans like in, it counted in the weeks. So like it's a nearly victimless crime. Um, anyway, so he mounts it for his collection and um, labels it as what he thought it was uh, and forgot about it for almost a decade. And, you know, at the time, uh, he was not at all an expert on um, the the lineage that this insect was actually a part of. And he still isn't now, but just this uh, very serendipitous moment of looking at it on screen with a bunch of students and all of them being like, wait a second. And him happening to Google the right thing based on like a hunch and them all being like, oh, my gosh. Um, he did then go on to confirm its actual identity with uh, with DNA. So it is definitely this giant lace wing. Um, and yeah, the big question now is whether there are more of them around. Um, because it's possible that the Ozark Mountains uh, near where this Walmart <laughs> is, um, have some pockets of like hitherto unknown giant lacewing populations. Um, it's also possible, as uh, Fisher, the study co-author who helped identify it, has pointed out to the press uh, that the bug just hitchhiked on a cross-country Walmart truck. There you um, go. Yeah. <laughs> but the the fact that they aren't sure is like largely due to how little the Ozarks have been studied um, especially given that there are many indications that it's like quite the biodiversity hotspot. So it's it kind of doesn't matter whether this particular bug um, actually represents an unknown pocket of this species that disappeared for reasons you don't understand. Though obviously, whenever there's a species that disappeared for reasons we don't really understand and it shows up again, that's that's cool. Um, but it kind of doesn't matter because the, the point, the nugget to take away here is like, gosh, we really should be looking for more stuff yeah. over there. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and yeah, just the reminder that like insects are so abundant that even just like one you casually pick up in a parking lot can end up being scientifically significant. So like just imagine what is out there to be studied and explored, um, you know, in the Ozark Mountains, not just to the Walmart parking lot, but yeah. also maybe in the Walmart parking I lot. I was just going to say, what can I find <laughs> in my local Walmart parking lot? Who's to say? Exactly. That's the <laughs> takeaway here. Um, it's time to engage with the wonder of the natural world in your Walmart parking lot. Um, nature is everywhere. And yeah, it's also a reminder, you know, this is something we talk about a lot of weirdest thing, but like old collections can hold a lot of new discoveries. And um, it's like actually kind of an awesome thing that he sort of quickly and incorrectly mislabeled this because it created this really serendipitous situation of like, a bunch of grad students getting to have the thrill of discovery yeah. over Zoom oh my during a very bleak time. That's so true. I really, yeah. <laughs> I'd, I would really cling to that if, if it were me. Yeah. yeah. So I really, I truly love this story. Um, even that I think like I'm almost annoyed that the, um, the thing that the press release like over blue and that other media outlets have run with like even has the potential to like taint it and have people be like oh well it's not that cool i'm like it is really cool just for not not for those reasons um it also made me think of one of the two high schools 
I went to um, was Arthur P. Shalek High School in Pittsgrove, New Jersey. And it was like literally in the middle of a field, like rural school. And we had these really, really freaky looking um, centipedes or millipedes of some kind. Oh. Um, and everyone at the school, like, had agreed that obviously these bugs were something freakish that had evolved in, <laughs> in the high school and existed nowhere else. Um, I now strongly suspect that it is not the case, but like there was this bug that there was like a thriving population of in the high school that none of us like saw in our houses nearby. And that just happens. Like bugs just like settle down, they breed <laughs> and they're like, why would I cross the field to go somewhere that's not this gym full of stinky socks, which is where I want to be. <laughs> that's fascinating to think about the yeah. little microcosms yeah oh my gosh so many little microcosms and yeah it's also um it's also a reminder of like how much the biodiversity of the u.s has changed in like a really short period of time um in doing their study on this insect um the etymologists did kind of like a historical review of um, sightings of it to kind of like figure out how weird it was <laughs> that it had showed up in Arkansas. And um, they found descriptions of like giant lacewing swarms in North America. Uh, they One in Ontario in 1903 that townspeople actually mistook for like smoke coming out of a building because there was such a big terrifying flurry. Of, yeah, it is simply terrifying. <laughs> um, and then in upstate New York in 1885, a naturalist wrote that like you could see hundreds of them sitting on parlor walls in the right season. Again, oh my goodness, I'm not really not my cup of tea. But yeah, they have just gone. And I think it is really um, important to to remember that like we have shaped the biodiversity totally of the places we live so so much um but yeah that's all the info i have on on this little uh this little bug um you know i'm sure some uh hobbyists and researchers will be prowling around uh the ozarks looking for some more jason bateman but... is on the hunt for the <laughs> <know>. lace wings <laughs> <laughs> um and but yeah for now i think this is just such a delightful little slice of life science story. So I hope listeners enjoyed. I'm sure they did. I did. <laughs> I did. Good. <laughs> You've inspired me to start uh, digging around in the New York City subway, maybe. There you go. Oh, my God. Speak of a microcosm. Actually, one thing they've almost talked about in Weirdest Thing a few times, and I, I've never quite put together a story on, um, there are, like, subspecies of mosquito that only exist in the London underground. And I suspect there must be something similar in the New York City subway. There's um, gotta again, be. Yeah. Again, like, there are so many little microclimates and ecosystems that, like, are just begging to be explored. <laughs> totally. But yeah, you know, the next time you're hanging out at, at the Walmart, um, keep an eye out for any ecologically significant bugs eyes are peeled snap a pick yeah yeah <laughs> okay cool we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more facts angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well i absolutely love this because you know if you own a home it can be really hard to maintain it's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project 
in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Okay, we're back. And uh, Jess, um, fill me in on Corpse Wax. Corpse Wax, yeah. So the first time I became like aware of the corpse wax thing, (laughs) uh, sometimes people call it grave wax instead, but uh, the first time I noticed it was I was playing the critically acclaimed masterpiece of a video game called Elden Ring. I'm sure many of you have heard of it if you're at all in the gaming sphere. It came out last year uh, in February of 2022. Many of us quote unquote gamers haven't stopped playing it. Uh, (laughs) When I wrote this script, like last week, the DLC had not been announced, and now it's announced. So all of us are freaking out. It's a it's a great time to be a gamer, I have to say. Um, and yeah, if you haven't heard me talk about it here on Weirdest Thing before, I do a lot of content creation around gaming. I'm a streamer on Twitch. Um, and when Elden Ring came out, I streamed it for pretty much like four months straight. Like couldn't couldn't get enough. And still, I do still stream it now. I just started a no leveling challenge run. It's just a good game. And there's so many little lore tendrils as we will get into. So Elden Ring is this gigantic RPG or role-playing game. So you do create your own character and you roam around this fantastically rich open world. You fight bosses, you level up, you get armor and weapons and all this fun stuff. Uh, And you can design your build pretty much however you want. Like maybe you're a sorcerer and you're just casting spells. Uh, Maybe you want to be like a dex build who uses katanas, like two katanas. Uh... Or maybe you're like me. I prefer the big, beefy, colossal weapons. Uh, my go-to, my favorite in all of Elden Ring, is something called Giza's Wheel. And it sounds frightening. It's frightening, but in a good way. It's it's good. it's also Great. known as the pizza cutter. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's like a huge, giant, uh, like serrated wheel on a stick. And if you use the pa- the special power, uh, it spins like a buzzsaw. It's very fun. Um, but yeah, but yeah, okay, corpse wax. Uh, <laughs> something that the developer of Elden Ring, which is a company called From Software, something they're very good at is world building and lore and storytelling. Um, and I like that they don't don't just like spoon feed it to you. They, you know, they tell these very deep, complex stories just through the environment. So first they did it in games like Dark Souls and Bloodborne, and they they've done it again in Elden Ring. So when you uh, explore the world, you often will read item descriptions to understand what the heck is going on? Because uh, a lot of times it's like things happen and you're just like, well, that's weird. <laughs> uh, but but like learning what's going on in these games is so rewarding because they make you search for it because uh, you're just unraveling these stories one little piece at a time. And Elden Ring is by far the most massive of their games. Like there's like 10 different plots that all kind of spin together in one way or another. And at least one of those stories has to do with the corpse wax. So <laughs> there is this area of the game called Landell, the royal capital. And as the name suggests, it's this big city kind of in the middle of the map. And as you explore it, uh, it's kind of clear some tragedy has gone down. It's like pretty deserted. The folks you come across are pretty hostile. And then a lot of the buildings are just sealed shut. And around some of the doorways, this like orangey yellow ooey gooey substance is oozing out. Uh, the first time I saw it, I was, I, I wanted to eat it. It looks delicious. <laughs> uh, Let me eat the goo, you coward. Listen, it's appetizing. It, you know what it, it reminded me of when like you leave a fruit roll up in the car and it kind of like mm-hmm. melts. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that this this goo is probably delicious because I, I think it's the corpse wax. <laughs> so in real life, corpse wax is a thing uh, and it happens when a body should decompose, but it's in an area with like very little or no oxygen at all and then a little too much moisture. Um, and that is the perfect storm for a process called saponification, so basically, yeah, and maybe I think we've probably touched on that here on Weirdest Thing once or twice before. I think you mentioned the bond. Yeah, when I talked about bond bodies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Turning into soaps. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So this anaerobic bacteria that, you know, anaerobic is, you know, they don't need oxygen to live. Uh, will kind of go to town on the corpse's body fat 
And then it like sets off a bunch of chemical reactions that turn the body's fat into the soapy, waxy substance called, I don't know how to pronounce this, uh, adipocere, which is like Latin for corpse wax. Uh, it starts off all ooey gooey, like we see in Alden Ring, but then it turns hard and brittle. And that can kind of like seal the corpse in and preserve it. Um, so it's definitely like an archaeologist's dream. And th- it's like uh, there are these things called soap mummies uh, that people have dug up. Like they're just preserved um, from the corpse wax. So there are two really famous ones that were exhumed right here in the U.S. They were dug up in Philly uh, in a cemetery in 1875 when they were doing some city improvements. They're moving some graves around, which always, it always is like a red flag. You know, I, that always, you know, I've seen poltergeists, but you know, I digress. Um, so they dug up these two folks and realized something fishy was going on and that they had super, like the super strange, like gray waxy coating, uh, and that they were like very undecomposed based on how old they were thought to be. And they sewed their clothes on, they had like buttons on their shirts and stuff and everything. And the buttons are important. They could actually tell one of the people was a lot younger when she died. They thought she was older um, because the buttons on her clothes, they thought like she had died in the 1792 yellow fever epidemic, but her buttons weren't made to the 1830s. So this, this saponification corpse wax situation is very good for scientific research. Uh, And yeah, so those two were kept intact for a scientific study. They were given the very creative and wonderful names of soap man and soap lady. Uh, Soap That's man. A dumber for them. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Um, soap man's at the Smithsonian. Uh, I don't know if he's on exhibit, but you can see Soap Lady at the ever wonderful Mutter Museum in Philly. Oh yeah, great place to be. Yes, I I went once, and I I consider myself, you know, a very tough person with a strong stomach, and I I got a little woozy in there. I, I did have to leave and get some air. It's a cool place, though. I do recommend going if you're ever in Philly. Um, But yeah, other soap mummies. In 1986, people found a headless body, totally encased in corpse wax, just floating around a bay in Switzerland. Uh, And I guess he drowned in the 1700s, and then he sunk to the bottom. And then down in the sediment of this bay, he became a soap mummy. But not his head. No, I was just going to say, like, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know what happened to his head. Um, It kind of has, like, sea creature vibes, but... Sure. Maybe foul play. I don't know. And then, yeah, also back in the 1700s, it was also a problem for Parisian city planners as they were trying to move bodies again, you know, these these grave movers um, from the Paris Cemetery of Innocence. Uh, and they're moving the bodies into these abandoned mines beneath the city. Yes, they were creating what would become today's famous Paris catacombs. Uh, oh, yeah. But they had trouble because like, you know, a lot of the bodies had become soap mummies and the corpse wax was like messing with the soil. So it was like hard to move things around. And then the bodies were like preserved. So it was like hard to move the bodies because it wasn't just bones. Uh, but yeah, so the two French scientists that like were called to figure out what was going on there, uh, Fourcroy and Touré, I'm maybe pronouncing those wrong. Um, they studied the corpse wax and because it was the first time I had really been seen in, at least in their circles, they named it that name, the Adiposere, and it comes Latin from adeps, fat, and ser, wax. So, you know, that's where the name comes from. But uh, the last little tendril of history with corpse wax that I'll bring up uh, is that there was this dude in England, Augustus Granville, who was studying an ancient Egyptian mummy back in 1825. And it was actually thought to have been the first autopsy of a mummy. Um, but you know, he didn't know what this waxy stuff was on this mummy's body. So he just kind of scraped it off, used it to make some candles, lit the candles to illuminate the mummy as he showed it off and lectured about it. So rude. Yeah. Yeah. The own, the own body wax turned into candles. Definitely that, um, the, the gentleman Egyptologists of that era were just, uh, disrespecting the persons, many persons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And using every part of the mummy for for swag. So I'm not surprised yes. that he made corpse wax candles, but I can't imagine that they smelled good. I can't imagine either. <laughs> yeah, I, it had to have been gross. Like, could he just not have gotten regular candles? Like, what was the deal? I don't know. I, I it was just that they were so the the like fetishization of Yeah 
of that culture. Like, you know, they were like making paint out of mummies. They were like eating mummies. That's Hopeful. right. I'm, I'm sure it was more about like the fact that he could make a candle out of part of a mummy than it being a good candle or a necessary candle. Yeah, you're so right. Um, but yeah, so corpse wax is real. Many stories of corpse wax in our world's history. But, you know, why an Elden Ring? Is it just oozing out of buildings? There are a couple of theories. Uh, I won't get too deep, but I'll briefly discuss them because I can't stop talking about Elden Ring. Great. Thank you. (laughs) One thought is that maybe there is some kind of plague in this capital city where you find the corpse wax. Um, And the city like sealed people inside their buildings. And that could have made, you know, some kind of environment like maybe they died in there and then there's no oxygen. Maybe there's some moisture and then they kind of all liquefied or at least made some corpse wax that was oozing out of the buildings. The theory that I like is much more entrenched in the actual story of Elden Ring because like death in this world isn't really a thing, at least not in like the traditional sense that we think of. And everybody's just kind of like reborn and nobody's nobody's soul is really getting put to rest anywhere Uh, because normally when you die in Elden Ring, your spirit's supposed to go back to this huge giant tree and that's actually like how you quote unquote die. But because you can't die anymore, some folks just like crawl to the roots of the tree and kind of just chill like, please... Can I, can my soul return, please? Maybe. (laughs) No more. Yeah. Uh, And that to me kind of seems like a corpse wax situation, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, And, you know, where is this huge giant tree? It's smack in the middle of the city where the buildings are oozing with corpse wax. Uh, I think maybe that is, has to do with why there's so much ooze everywhere. But uh, there's there's corpse wax and elsewhere in the game, too. It's used as a tool to mend weapons together and like also graft to like living beings together so if anyone's played a lot of stuff that a lot of that stuff has to do with gargoyles the gargoyles are kind of like plants in Elden Ring it's kind of weird uh like in real life you know grafting is a real thing where you can attach a branch of a plant on the to the body of another plant and then create hybrids and variants for complicated lore reasons a similar thing is done with the gargoyles in Elden Ring and then there's the boss named Godric you know he he's called Godric the grafted because he's sticking arms and stuff on himself (laughs) yeah anyway i'm wrapping up but corpse wax shows up <laughs> the other games too um the same developers that made Elden ring also made another excellent game called sekiro uh and the undead beings in that game can drop an item called a lump of grave wax uh so that makes sense because if these people are undead but kind of undecaying like maybe uh-huh. they're preserved by a kind of corpse wax they are also found in very watery areas so you know i appreciate that they take the science into account there um and also it's in pokemon (laughs) which i love the new scarlet and violet uh pokemon games there's a new pokemon called graveyard i think that's how you say it it's a cute little ghost type dog and it has a little candle on its head maybe a corpse wax candle who's to say um (laughs) it does have an item occasionally called graveyard wax uh and supposed to be like a crafting material to make tms aka these little machines that teach your pokemon a new move um so yeah, that's my tale on Corpse Wax. I love when games and media in general do scientifically accurate little tendrils in the story like that. It's one of my favorite things ever. Um, I do want to say big thanks to some other content creators who helped me connect the dots on this one, uh, like Trina, Quaylag, and Zuli the Witch. Um, there's lots of details in Elden Ring, and they do a very good job of tying everything together. And I'll link to their um, socials and stuff in the episode description, hopsidecom slash weird. Um, along with my Twitch channel, if anyone ever wants to hang out and hear me wax poetic, oh no, you're welcome oh. for that one uh, about science and lore and Elden Ring and other games. But yeah, that's my that's my story on corpse wax. I love it. It really made me want to play, even though I'm bad at you uh, can do really it. Bad at video games. You can do I know it. I I know I can do it. <laughs> but should I do it? Yes, I will at some point. But I'm yeah, I'm a sucker for for world building and for yeah. like. Oh, stuff you had to piece together. It's the best. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And uh, John, tell me about um, some fights between old timey skyscraper builders. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for sure. All right, so allow me to transport you back to June 1930. You're in midtown Manhattan. It's the early days of the Great Depression. Herbert Hoover is president. 
and the Chrysler building, the world's tallest, is hiding a well-kept secret. Or, at, well, at least that's what the people raising the Empire State Building several blocks away are getting really, really concerned about. <laughs> so, all right. One of these skyscrapers will claim and hold the skyscrapiest of titles for the next four decades, but the past few years have been marked by a grueling back-and-forth slugfest of design changes and height increases as several New York City structures and their developers duked it out on paper. Uh, the Chrysler Building, which is designed by William Van Allen, is open. Its height is set at 1,046 feet. Right. Nearby... No the take-backsies. <laughs> no. The Nearby, the Empire State Building, pride of architectural firm Shreve, Lamb, and Harmon, is expected to surpass it. But can those developers of the Big Apple's soon-to-be-biggest building really, really be sure that their rival won't hoist a stealthy spire at the last moment to maintain the, their spot atop the New York City skyline? Can they really be sure? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> so you can almost imagine the Empire State Building bigwigs standing there in their partially constructed building, maybe on the ground, hands on their hips, squinting a half mile to the northeast, muttering Tom Waits style, what's he building in there? <laughs> this is so mysterious, I'm obsessed. Yeah, also, I really don't think enough people reference the Tom Waits classic, what's he building in there often enough, so thanks <laughs> thanks for that, John. That, that felt like no a gift problem. just for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I could think about when researching this. Uh, <laughs> so, to understand their worry and their concern, you have to go back a little farther in time and understand exactly what the 1920s were like for people who enjoy buying land, digging a hole, and piling a bunch of stuff in it until their stack of steel, drywall, wires, and whatever else is really, really tall. So, at the time... Such a way to describe building development. I love it. Go on. And I've built buildings, so, like, I, I, know, what, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you sure. sure. Say it. <laughs> I've also dug really deep holes at the beach, if that counts. <laughs> An expert. <laughs> Up and down. <laughs> so at the time, the Eiffel Tower was the tallest structure in the world at 984 feet. And Lower Manhattan's Woolworth Building was the tallest building at 791 feet. I don't even Van know Allen, what that building is. I don't know yep, either. Yep, got lost to time, yeah. even though I'm pretty sure it's yeah. still there. That's just suck. Like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Van Allen, who's the eventual architect of the Chrysler building at the, in the early 1920s, he was working with H. Craig Severance, a man the New York Times called, quote, his polar opposite in style and personality. Severance was a charmer. Van Allen was an apparent introvert. Um, They've been business partners for years, but all that fell apart after a trade publication praised Van Allen's creativity and snubbed Severance. The two ended up in an old-fashioned architect's duel where instead of brandishing swords, pistols, or bare-knuckle fists, they simply hunched over desks trying to figure out how to erect a rigid, tapering edifice that was taller than the one built by the guy they didn't like. <laughs> oh, good old measuring contest, baby! Yeah, subtle. Exactly. Very subtle. <laughs> so Van Allen got started first, signing on to design a 40-story building at the Chrysler Building site. This eventually became 54 stories, then 63, then 68. At about the same time, Severance was busy working on 40 Wall Street, a tower in New York City's financial district that's now known as the Trump Building. Back then, though, oh. it was the Manhattan Company Building, after the banking company that was headquartered there. Incidentally, the Manhattan Company was founded by Aaron Burr, a man known for a different kind of duel. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hamilton. Yep. <laughs> It all comes together. Everything in New York City <laughs> is related to everything else. <laughs> so early on, 40 Wall Street was shorter than the Woolworth Building and the under-construction Chrysler Building, but Severance and his bosses eventually boosted its plant height to 840 feet, which exceeded all others. The fight was on. Walter Chrysler, head of the car manufacturing company that bears his name, likewise got Van Allen, his architect, to increase their structure to 925 feet, retaking the theoretical lead. In turn, 40 Wall Street was revised to 927 feet, which is where it stands today. Severance claimed victory, but Chrysler and Van Allen weren't done. 
I like to imagine the two of them learning of 40 Wall Street's height, shrugging and saying, it's just two feet. But <laughs> Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's just two feet. That's, that's not too much. Uh, but unlike the early rounds of this heavyweight brawl, the Chrysler developers decided not to respond with yet another public height revision. This time, they opted for subtlety. Van Allen commissioned a lengthy spire that would permanently place his rival's building below his. The final piece... The spires. They always, there's always with the spires. <laughs> yes. It's the one way to make sure that you are taller by just adding stuff to the top. Yeah. That's uh, like when I played volleyball and they wanted to like beef up everybody's heights, you would put your hair in like a high bun and then they would <laughs> measure your, your height over your bun. That's the, I, I, that's, and it worked, you know? That that's is amazing. a fun fact. I never knew. Well, I don't think everybody does that. You know, it's a little frowned upon, I would imagine, but, you know. So, Van Allen commissioned a lengthy spire that would permanently place his rival's building below his. This final piece was built inside the Chrysler building itself, at least somewhat out of sight, until so it was sneaky. ready to be assembled. So mm-hmm. sneaky. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, Popsi actually covered this uh, at the time. I looked back in our archives. I guess they they built some of the uh, spire outside and then lifted it up and then dropped it inside the building so they could finish working on it. Um, oh my so goodness! So that's a cool, yeah, being sneaky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but finally, in October 1929, an 85-foot crane on top of the structure reached deep into the bowels of the building and hoisted the spire out, kind of like a magician pulling a rabbit out of its out of his hat. Oh, I know where. I feel mm. like I know where this is going. <laughs> Do they so, were they worried that they just have like a telescoping infinite spire down there? <laughs> essentially, that is a that is essentially where this is going. Um, so once they pulled the spire out of the guts of the Chrysler building, uh, assembly reportedly took less than a day, and when it was done, the building stood at one thousand forty six feet, which was easily the tallest structure in the world. Yeah, more than two feet. <laughs> yes, does far more than two feet. Uh, so, but to be fair to Forty Wall Street, uh, that building did open a day or two before the Chrysler Building in May 1930. So it may have technically been the world's tallest open building for like a really short time. But all the fame and renown certainly went to Chrysler and Van Allen. Um, sure. And they, they were built. They were built kind of like at the same time. So it's unless you were like out there measuring specifically it's not really certain like whether either one of them passed each other on the way up or or any of that so at this point i know i haven't said much about the empire state building uh but in the scheme of things it was a relatively quiet spectator until chrysler raised that spire to victory to continue the dueling metaphor the empire state building showed up while the other two were trading blows and decided i can beat both these guys but just kind (laughs) of held back until one of them was the clear victor. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So one month after Chrysler's spire was riveted in place, the Empire State Building's developers, John J. Raskob and Al Smith, uh, updated their structure to reach 1,050 feet. I hear you saying in your heads, uh, <laughs> or out loud, uh, that's just four feet. Uh, and I'm that's sure- That's just four the feet. Two... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh <laughs> I'm sure the two Midtown Manhattan skyscraper camps were saying the same thing. Uh, Raskob was legitimately afraid Chrysler might hide a rod in the spire and stick it up at the last minute to retain the title of world's tallest building. Oh my God. <laughs> um, and uh, according to Neil Bascombe's book, Higher, a Historic Race of the Sky and the Making of a City, uh, someone published a cartoon around the time this building height fight was going on. Uh, And the cartoon featured a lanky architect that kind of looked like Van Allen and a building that kind of looked like the Chrysler building. (laughs) In it, the architect was explaining that his structure secretly held a spike that extended the length of the skyscraper and that if anyone built something taller, they could just jack up the spike and still be the tallest. (laughs) (laughs) Eager, eager, eager. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just picturing people like, like duct taping more spires to get like <laughs> the extra five feet they needed. Yeah. That's that's DIY and I can yeah, that endorse is. that. Yeah. I have to say I looked up the Woolworth building and um, it's 
definitely prettier than the Empire State Building. The Chrysler Building is the prettiest of them all. So I think like, you know, we have to ask ourselves, like the Chrysler Building achieved that height and also uh, is really cute. And that's worth a lot. Yeah. Worth more than four yeah, feet. Well, Van Allen was uh, known for his creativity and kind of thinking outside the right, box. Right, yeah, um, yeah. I read I read something that was uh, that sort of that said he didn't really pay attention or read any of the like architectural digests about what his contemporaries were doing because he mm. just kind of wanted to do his own thing and not be affected by what everyone else was doing, which is a a, a vibe I can certainly get behind. Uh, I know that both of you have seen my occasionally chaotic uh, DIY solutions to things, um, <laughs> which I love, by the way. So that is, uh, I don't know if the the listeners care to know, but I once hand drilled through a piece of metal with a drill bit in a pair of vice grips because I did not have the correct tools. Uh, oh, I do not boy. endorse this. For all I recall, else. all I recall is the mac and cheese in a bag. Yeah, uh, that was something. The only mac it and was. cheese I could not eat. Yeah. Please don't. No one should do that. But <laughs> you should all read my suffering. <laughs> Wow, I love I love old timey uh, fights. Um, yeah, I want like a Hamilton style musical about this, or like some kind yeah. of cheeky movie with like Leonardo DiCaprio in it, and like uh, I don't know. I just think it's yeah. Like, how has nobody made ba- something about Baz this yet? Baz Luhrmann's take on yes. this it would be great. Oh Beautiful. my god, I need it now. <laughs> yeah, so there was all this secrecy and concern about. Chrysler Spire and like he did it once before who's to say he's not going to do it again <laughs> um, right right yeah. uh this was really not outside the realm of possibility and the Empire State Building didn't want to take any chances so in December 1929 uh a couple months after Chrysler Spire went up the building's plans were changed again for the final time to include a 200 foot metal crown and a 222 foot mast that was meant for mooring airships uh, even without the mast, the building a would mast? still be 1,200. Yes. Uh, what tarnation? Like, it's still there, too. Uh, but no airships actually moored to it because the winds are too high. Um, just kind of a... They were like, oh, our spire will be useful for airships, not like the Chrysler Building spire, which is just pointy and meant to be tall. Um, <laughs> but... Nobody ever Flexing used it the for that. utility. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly just antennas now. Um, <laughs> but even without that antenna mast, uh, the Empire State Building was still 1,250 feet, uh, way bigger than the Chrysler Building, and then the mast jacked it up even farther to like 1,400 feet, uh, which is where it is now. Um, and despite Raskob's concerns, Van Allen never unveiled a secret height boosting <laughs> rod inside the Chrysler Building. Mm. <laughs> or at least they haven't yet <laughs> right Not there's yet. still They're time leading. I didn't do the math to find out if doubling the height of the Chrysler building would make it the tallest building today uh, I have no idea I wonder. but maybe I should do that um, mm. listeners tweet at us the, do the math <laughs> I can't I'm a journalist I don't <laughs> can't do that math <laughs> uh, so the Empire State Building had had the Empire State Building had the title of the world's tallest until the First World Trade Center passed it in 1970. Um, but still today, the Chrysler Building is the tallest steel-framed brick building, and I think that counts for something. Yeah. Also, it's prettier, like you said. Yeah, it's yeah. very pretty. I've I agree. seen the Burj Khalifa in person, and it made me nauseous just to look at it. So oh my god, I cannot imagine. I, I really think just just standing there looking up at it, I was like, oh no 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 no. So I think yeah. there is something to be said about a building that's impressively tall but like chill. Yes, like, <laughs> yes. Must honestly must we go higher? higher? I, that's how I'd like to describe myself: impressively tall and chill. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I sort of feel like the, uh, the, the pinnacle of like beautiful skyscrapers reaching great heights was, was probably this era of, mm. uh, the Chrysler building. And then after that, it's just been like, make them tall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> and yeah, it's really um, so you know. Sometimes I look at really tall buildings and I'm like, mm. nope. Mm-hmm. What have the audacity? We wrought? <laughs> yeah, um, zero temptation to go up to the top. Absolutely none. And I don't mind heights, but listen, the context is important. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to be at a be staring at a glass window from that height. It's unnatural. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh what was the weirdest thing we learned this week um mm, i really enjoyed the measuring contest I, personally i also really enjoyed that i think it's a great <laughs> historical tale that um i honestly can't believe i i haven't heard before so Ditto. yeah john congratulations on your win thank you i did not know this was a contest but i am <laughs> i'm glad to win <laughs> a great strategy. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Faltman, along with Jess Bodie, who also serves as our audio engineer and editor extraordinaire. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. Our logo is by Katie Belloff. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project In just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.